بسم اللہ الرحمن الرحیم السلام علیکم و رحمۃ اللہ وبرکاتہ پیس اینڈ بلسنگز آف اللہ بی اپون یو آل ویلکم ٹو اندر ایڈیشن آف دی بریکفس شو ہے آن دی وائس آف اسلام ریڈیو ٹوڈے از وینزڈے دی سیکنڈ آف نومبر ٹوینٹی ٹوینٹی ٹو ویتھ مائی Um, if you're familiar with the breakfast show, I'm sure that you would be. Normally, when we begin the breakfast show, we talk about, uh, we go through the news, what's happening around the world. Uh, we start off with the weather as well. Uh, and then after that, we get into our main segments, the main topics that we're going to be talking about, discussing about today. Uh, it is an interactive show. Uh, the lines are also open if you want to come, if you want to you know, uh, join me on the phone, if you want to call me, if you want to, uh to uh, you know voice your opinions if you want to um raise awareness uh, you can do so on our line which is 0208-687-7878 you can also tweet us at voice of islam uk or leave us uh, any 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 comments on our instagram page which is also voice of islam uk as well um the two topics that we that we are going to be talking about that we're going to be discussing about today um on today's show will firstly be about how met officer faced 11 misconduct allegations something quite serious i mean today's show is a little bit serious the topics that we're going to be speaking about are a little bit serious and this is uh, how this officer faced mis- 11 misconduct allegations as well so that we'll talk, we'll talk about that we'll get, go through that um uh, as well the second part of the show or the, towards the latter part of the show we are going to be speaking about talking about um something to do with abuse sexual abuse and child specifically child sexual abuse and uh, how there's a major inquiry into how failing to report it should be made illegal so it's it is quite interesting if you want to um if you want to you know if you have an opinion about any of these topics do give us a call on 0208 687 Seven eight seven eight. We would love to hear from you. What we, what you have to say? What you what you know? What you're thinking about? Um, and uh, you know, as it is going to be quite interesting, quite an interesting show. Um, do tell us what you think about all of these topics as well. Um, to start off with the weather, the weather um, for or the weather forecast for today is going to be. as uh, as high as uh, 15 15 degrees and uh, towards the latter part of the day um is going to be quite wet with some rain as well as what the forecasts are saying and uh, the temperature will go down uh, as low as 11 degrees 12 degrees in some areas as well but relatively relatively you know if you if you if you look at the weather right now Uh, I mean the weather is a bit up and down yesterday it was raining and the weather forecast for the next couple of days is also forecasting that it's going to rain as well but if you look at the temperatures the temperature is uh, is is not that it's not that low which is to me is a little bit surprising as well because we are uh, we have started November we are quite deep into into autumn and you know uh, going into the transition period from autumn to winter but if you look at the temperatures uh, it's as high i mean this whole week it's as high as 16 degrees 
and and that's uh, I mean and and the lowest temperature that the, that they will go to would be about uh, ten degrees as well. So that's uh, quite interesting. And of course, I mean, I'm talking about the day because at night time it does tend to go a little bit uh, less than that, a little bit colder than that as well. But if you think about it, 12 degrees, 13, 14, 15 degrees, um, e- even today is saying it's going to be 15 degrees as well. And uh, for the next couple of days, sort of similar temperatures as well. So that's not, to, to me, it's not as, it's not as, uh, it's not as cold as, it, uh, you know, as it, as it normally is, maybe, but maybe because you know the 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 weather, the seasons are actually shifting. And I'm not sure if you actually uh, know this or not. Maybe it's just a, you know, maybe I'm just making it up. But it, for for me, what it seems like is that the seasons are sort of shifting or moving forward a little bit. So in November, December, January, where sort of you know the peak cold weather, the temperatures will be will drop. Um, as low as they, as as they would do um, during the year, will be the coldest in December, January as well. Now nowadays, or you know these sort of you know the, for the past few years, we've seen sort of a little bit of a shift in that as well. So December, January, February, March, we've seen cold cold weather's in March as well. We've seen uh, we've seen snow in March. We've seen heavy snow. In in March as well, and even April sometimes you see that uh, even in April it's uh, it's quite cold as well uh, sometimes as well. But it's it's all it's it's a bit odd. It's a bit it's a bit it's a bit weird as well. But we see that the temperatures are sort of uh, although the seasons especially they are sort of uh, shifting a little bit forward as well. Um, let let me know what you what you think about that. What you think about that as well. Um, just a quick roundup of uh, of today's uh, national newspapers. What you know, what the newspapers are actually talking about today. The Daily Telegraph says that the NHS is seeking seven billion pounds more to tackle backlogs. We know that we know that they have they have been cuts in not just the NHS, but the but the the public sector. We've seen we've seen so many cuts in in schools, primary schools especially. We've seen so many cuts in uh, in the public sector. We've seen so many, uh, you know, NHS workers. They've they've forced to they've been forced to leave. And I know you. I know one of the reasons for that was Brexit. Yeah, fine. That that is true. But despite the fact that they because because of brexit a lot of the europeans a lot of the people a lot of our foreign key workers nurses doctors uh people that you know they they, they were working who, or you know who were the staff of the nhs they actually left they had they were they were forced to leave they were forced to leave not just the nhs but the country they you know they went back but the thing is is that we had this shortage of staff right but then there were also cuts coming in and then those people, those staff, those nurses, those doctors, those other key workers who were working in the, not just the NHS, but the public sector, they were forced to work overtime. They were forced to work overtime. And the thing is, is that sometimes, I mean, even if they're getting paid, they're getting paid minimum wage. And that doesn't, it's not, it's not cutting, it's not cutting it. It's not cutting it because the cost of living is going up. Energy prices, bills are going up and we all see this. We see, you know, to actually tackle this sort of problem, 
um, we need the money, we need the money to come in. We need the funds to come in. But how how odd or how bizarre is it that raising taxes, raising uh, all of these things um, to actually make up for the deficit, is that the right thing to do? When you see so many millionaires, so many multi-millionaires, you know, we see the prime minister. The prime minister is, t- is twice as rich as the king. Where does that happen? I mean, four or five hundred years ago, if somebody said that this, the prime minister, if somebody said that, you know, one person, this person is actually richer than the king, they would laugh at you. They, that, that would be unbelievable. But here in the 21st century, in 2022, the prime minister is twice as rich as the king. I mean, that's possible. <laughs> but the thing is, is that, the thing is, is that when there's, you know, when we have rich, rich leaders, um, is it is it right to, to, to raise taxes on the working class when they're struggling to make ends meet anyway? Isn't it the responsibility of the of the of the authority, whoever, whatever the authority is, whatever the authoritative body is, to actually uh, make up for the funds as you know, the, you know, during you know for, from their means? Can they not do that? Is that not possible? The thing is, is that when there's when there's justice, when there's you know absolute justice, then 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 it's not just it's not just about justice as well. It's also about wanting. It's all, it's all about wanting to, to 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 make the people stand up on their own feet. It's also wanting the people to be to actually. You know, you know, live their lives to the best of their ability as well. It's also wanting the 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 whole public to actually uh, uh, not be in deficit, not have so many debts, not ha- not having to pay so many uh, bills which they which they can't even afford. So it's up to the authority. It's up to the government. It's up to the people that are that are making these policies. That are making changes in these policies as well. To actually think about this, that is, is there justice? Is it fair? Is the system fair? Now, the Daily Express leads with um, news that former Health Secretary Matt Hancock has been suspended from the Conservative Party after it was revealed that he is to star in I'm a Celebrity. And... uh, I mean, the, the, the Daily Express says that splendid fury over Hancock joining I'm a celebrity. And that's what the a lot of the newspapers are actually showing uh, uh, or actually displaying today. The man with no shame. That's what the Daily Mirror describes former Health Secretary Matt Hancock amid calls from him to quit as an MP over his I'm a celebrity role. The Guardian is also has also got a picture of Hancock as well. The Guardian reports that the government has war-gamed plans to cope with energy blackouts lasting up to seven days as well. The Times reports that that people have been allowed to join the police despite having convictions for robbery, indecent exposure and domestic abuse. How is that even possible? How does that... How does that work out? I mean, the, the the police, the police are supposed to be that authority which everyone is uh, looks at and says, you know, that's justice right over there. 
That's that's the fair. Those people are the fair ones. Those people uh, have have dignity. Those people those people have integrity. Those people don't have a record. But the Times is, all, is reporting that people have been allowed to join the police despite having convictions for robbery, indecent exposure, and domestic abuse. Um, the Sun is also uh, describing. Or talking about, or talking about Matt, Matt uh, Hancock uh, as well, uh, uh, you know, about being suspended from the from the Tories for joining I'm a Celebrity as well. The you know, the, as I mentioned, a lot of the tabloid newspapers are also uh, reporting this as well. The Daily Mail says that thousands of police officers have criminal records, are linked to gangsters, or pose a risk to the public, and this is quite serious. You know, this is not this is not. This is not a joke. This is quite serious. Uh, the Metro leads with Matt Hancock's decision to take part in Armour Celebrity and the reaction from families of those who died of COVID while he was the health secretary. I mean, this is a serious thing as well. The Financial Times report reports the, the government faces growing pressure to impose further windfall taxes uh, on oil and gas firms following bumper profit announcements from Shell and also BP. The Daily Telegraph warns that there there are sweeping tax rises ahead. A picture of uh, of our Prime Minister as well, um, standing in front of number 10. Um, The senior Conservative MPs have warned Suela Breverman uh, risked fueling support of far-right extremists after she described the channel migrant crisis as an invasion. And this is according to the Times. Some cabinet ministers are privately questioning whether Home Secretary is actually up to the job. The, and this is what the, this is what the I newspaper is, uh, is reporting. So this is a quick. Uh, this was a quick roundup of the front pages of the uh, of the newspapers for this uh, for this morning. Um, we we've seen a thousands talking about this uh, this issue that thousands, if not oh sorry, I, I misread that hundreds, if not thousands, of police officers who have failed vetting checks may be serving in England and Wales. A watchdog has actually warned. Um, so the Home Office in, in, Inspectorate of uh, uh, consta- uh, uh, the you know those who check the constables, check the police, and fire and rescue services look at they looked at uh, uh, just over eleven thousand police officers and staff across eight forces, examined seven hundred and twenty-seven vetting files, considered two hundred and sixty-four complaints and misconduct investigations and interviewed 42 people. And what they found, and this is what the Sky uh, News is, has reported, they found cases where criminal behaviour was dismissed, was, dismi- uh, was dismissed sorry, as a one-off uh, applicant with links to extensive criminality in their, in their families where hire, were hired as police officers. Warnings a, a perspective officer sh- uh, you know could actually present a risk to the public were ignored officers transfer uh, transferring between forces despite a history of complaints or allegations of misconduct 
and basic and basic blunders that led to the wrong vetting decisions. The report found that some staff had criminal records, some were alleged to have committed serious crime, some had substantial uh, undischarged debt, and some had re- uh, relatives linked to organized crimes as well. How, how, how has this happened? How has this happened here in a developed country? How is this any different to, to, to those countries who are developing countries? These things we, we sort of do see in developing countries that the, 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 there, there will be some police officers, there will be some people who are working in the public sector, especially when it comes to police, um, that they, they, you know, they, take, they take bribes, they, they also you know, they, they turn the cheek. If you just give them a little bit of money, slip them a little bit of money underneath, underneath the table or just put it in their pocket, they'll just look the other way. Uh, if you want to forge something, you just give a little bit of money and they'll forge something for you. Some, we see this happening in the developing countries. We see that the police, I'm not saying police as a whole, but there are, there are corrupt police officers in the, in the third world countries, in the developing countries, the less economically developed countries. And then we say that, you know, they, they are developing countries. They don't have that much money. They don't have that, that much infrastructure. Maybe they don't ha- even have that much education. And because wealth has not been distributed properly uh, in those sort of, in those countries, um, this is why we see police officers taking bribes and doing other things as well. Uh, sometimes even being involved in burglary, in theft, in grand theft auto, in various other things, in various different abuses as well. But... Then we say, then we talk, look at these countries. We look at the developing, the, the already developed countries, and the you know the the those countries which are the leading nations. But then we see the same problems happening over there. How is that? How is that even possible? How is that even possible? Why do we see such people who have criminal records, who are linked to gangs, who are who have been, uh, who have a record of uh, you know of 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 being violent. Who have a record of being, uh, of being the predator, of being the leader of uh, you know of, of of abusing others? How can how can this happen? How can who let this slide? Um, the the Sky uh, News also reports that some 131 cases were identified, where inspectors said vetting decisions were questionable at best, and in 68 of those, the inspectors disagreed with the decision to grant vetting clearance. Matt Parr uh, said that who's the inspector of constabulary said that it is too easy for the wrong people to both gain to both join and stay in the police. Uh, uh, if the police are to rebuild public trust and protect their own female officers and staff, vetting must be much more rigorous and sexual misconduct uh, taken more seriously. And this is something that we're also speaking about. We're talking about this uh, in today's show as well. That Met Officer faced 11 misconduct allegations. And this is exactly linked to this. Why have they not been met, uh, vetted vetted properly? It seems, they also said that it seems uh, reasonable for me to say that over the last three or four years, the number of people recruited over whom we would raise significant questions is certainly in the hundreds, if not low thousands. It's not in the tens, uh, you know, it's, it's at least in the hundreds. But still, 
how is this even possible? We see that we see that people have been, uh, you know, we we see that female uh, officers uh, subject to appalling behavior by male colleagues. This is not just this is not just happening in the police staff itself. This is happening that police officers are also misusing their authority to 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 do all of these abuses to 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 you know vulnerable vulnerable women vulnerable children and uh, how is this how how is this even possible home secretary has you know it's called that they are that she is uh, disappointed um you know that that this uh, that this has happened because even in a small number of cases forced are taking uh, unnecessary risk with vetting um, that's what she said that's what the Home Secretary said uh, also I I have been clear that culture and standards in the police need to change and the public's trust in policing restored sometimes we say that you know we question why people don't trust the police we question why people are not in favour of the police and this is the reason why these are the reasons why people are afraid of the police. They're afraid because they don't want the police to misuse their their authority. And and I'm not the thing is is that yes, it's maybe in the hundreds, maybe in the thousands, or even if it's low thousands, fine. But still there are still cases of that. Why why is this the case? Why you know how 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 are there so many police officers who have who have gone through the system, who have passed the checks, and nothing has happened to them, even though they have a record. The thing is, is that if they have the same record, would they be allowed to work in a different firm? Would they be allowed to work as something else? You know, as a public in the public sector, would they be allowed to be if they applied for a job in a primary school or even a secondary school? Would they be allowed? Or would they be given that job? Would they have passed the test if they wanted to be a doctor? if they wanted to become a nurse, if they wanted to be any other part of the public sector, would that be allowed? How is this justice? Where Where is the justice? You know, Islam says that, Islam says that there should be absolute justice. And especially with those who are in authority, because the authority, those people who are in authority, those people who have authority, uh, not just talking about government, but those people who are, sort of in charge, we see that the police are in charge, you know, in a way you can say that over the public. They are there to actually restore the peace. They are also there to actually make sure that there is peace, that there's no one to disturb the peace, that there's no one out there to to actually take the law upon their own hands. That's why the police is there. And because they have been given this authority, Islam says, whoever has authority, this authority has been given to them by God. This is the trust given to them by God. And everyone must fulfill their trust. Everyone must fulfill this responsibility that has been given, that they have been burdened with. Um, it's not something that we should take lightly. It's not something that we can just let it slide. This is a very serious thing. Um, talking about this, you know, even you know, talking about this, these sort of cases happening in the in in the developed countries is saddening. It's saddening to say the least. And what difference can we say? What's the difference then between a developed country and a developing country? Well, I mean, I'm actually serious. What's the difference? What is the difference? We see what happened to George Floyd in America. 
we see that you know he wasn't the only one the police need to be reformed as well um and it's and it's something that we as i mentioned as i just said it should not be taken lightly um matt hancock re- uh, reveals why he's decided to go and I'm a celebrity get me out of here he revealed that he will be jetting off to the jungle in uh, australia to appear uh, to appear on this it itv reality show his decision has meant his um his whip has been removed extensive uh, ex- effectively expelling him from the conservative parliamentary pa- uh, party and forcing him to sit as an uh, independent uh, independent until it is reinstated he is uh, but he is about telling the sky telling the sun uh, newspaper it's our job as politicians to go to where the people are not to sit in ivory towers in westminster <laughs> uh, it's sometimes uh, you know it's it's interesting it's inter- it's interesting uh what these people actually go through and uh, how you know how much is you know how 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 funny it is uh, in other news food inflation surged to a record 11.6% in october with staple items including tea bags milk and sugar all seeing significant price rises and we've se- we've seen this happening we, we you know we, we we see this happening o- overall uh, this is what the sky uh, newspaper has uh, reported sky news has reported Overall, shops increased prices by 6.6% in the 12 months to October, the highest level since records began in 2005. Um, but fresh food has been most vulnerable to surging costs rising by an average of 13.3% over the past year. The British Retail uh, uh, Consortium uh, say the increases reflect a tight labour market and a jump in energy costs for retailers. BRC Chief Executive Helen Dickinson said that it has been a difficult month for consumers who not only face an increase in their energy bills, but also a more expensive shopping basket. I mean, I mean that, is, that is true. But the question is, is that what are we doing to, to curb that? What are we doing to actually restore and these uh you know re- restore this um research from which has showed millions of consumers are actually already skipping meals for struggling to put healthy food on the table due to the cost of living crisis and that's sad to see which head of food uh food supply food policy sue davies said that this is vital that households get the support they need from the government and businesses yeah, it's but the thing is, it's easy to say that. It's easy to say that the households, you know, they should be getting support from the government and businesses as well. But what, 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 what's been, what's happening then? What's happening to for for this? Supermarkets have a crucial role to play in helping their helping their customers navigate navigate the tough months ahead. Budget lines for healthy and affordable essential items need to be widely available uh, across their stores and they should ensure shoppers can easily compare the price of products to get the best value. Uh, promotions should be targeted at supporting those most in need. That's what the that's what uh, Sue Davies 
which is head of food food policy uh, from which uh, as well. Meanwhile, a new report from from a legal and general shows households are only 19 days from the deadline, uh, while women are on average just 14 days away from the from the breadline uh, if they if they, if they lose their jobs. Overall, 60% have less than £5,000 in savings and 16% have no savings at all. Uh, this is what uh, the, the research which they did, which they conducted, actually shows as well. And that's actually, if you think about it, 60% have less than £5,000 in savings. Um, it, it, it is a difficult situation that we are all in. We're forced to tap into our savings. We're forced to uh, uh, skip meals. And research has shown that people are already skipping meals just so that they can you know, keep up with the cost of living, keep up with the inflation rates as well. Um, a lot of uh, this is what the um, a lot of the newspapers are actually uh, reporting, what they are actually talking about. And of course, uh, talking about sports, the Champions League has also it was also yesterday, and it will also be today as well. Liverpool beat uh, Liverpool beat Napoli uh, yesterday two nil, which is actually quite uh, quite interesting, quite uh, quite a good score for them as well. Uh, Tottenham also beat Marseille two one as well uh, today. Uh, Celtic will be playing Real Madrid. Uh, also, Chelsea will be playing uh, Dimano Zagreb. Manchester City will be playing Sevilla. And uh, Juve and PSG will be playing against each other, which will be quite uh, quite interesting uh, as well. Uh, so, some, some interest. And the World Cup is also coming up. A lot of people are actually excited for that. I'm talking about the Football World Cup in Qatar. I'm not talking about the cricket because that's already, that World Cup has already started so very interesting uh, few weeks ahead in terms of sports um uh, because you know there's, there's a lot there's a lot going on very much looking forward to the world cup as well and we're going to be taking a very short break and then right after that we'll get into our main segment our first segment for this uh, for this morning which is uh, which is sort of linked to the news article that, that I was discussing uh, as well that I was talking about how there needs to be reform in the public sector, especially when it comes to vetting police officers. Met officer faced 11 misconduct allegations. We'll speak a little bit more about that later on. We'll be back after a very short break. Don't go anywhere. Five core beliefs of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. The number one core belief of Ahmadiyya Muslims is the same as any other Muslim around the world. And that is the five pillars of Islam namely proclaiming the unity of God, offering five daily prayers, offering financial sacrifice in the form of zakat, fasting in the month of Ramadan, and offering pilgrimage to Mecca, which is Hajj. This is the absolute basic and foundation for any Muslim around the world. The second core belief for Ahmadi Muslims is our belief in the Holy Prophet Muhammad, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him as we believe him to be the seed of the prophets and the last law-bearing prophet that God Almighty has sent for mankind. We believe him to be the perfect and complete creation. The third core belief 
for Ahmadi Muslims is our belief in the Holy Quran as a perfect guide for mankind. We believe it to be exactly letter to letter the same word as was revealed to the Holy Prophet Muhammad may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him 1400 years ago. A fourth core belief of Ahmadi Muslims is our belief in the Messiah and Mahdi. Now the majority of Muslims around the world, they also believe in this concept of the Messiah and Mahdi. But this is where us Ahmadi Muslims have the upper hand. We believe that the Messiah and Mahdi that was prophesied by the Holy Prophet Muhammad, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, that very Messiah and Mahdi has come. We believe him to be Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmad, may peace be upon him. In the Ahadith, the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, has given the Messiah and Mahdi the status of a prophet. And we believe that the promised Messiah, Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmad, has come for the revival of Islam and to re-establish a strong connection between creation and the Creator. A fifth core belief for Ahmadi Muslims is our belief in Khilafat, in successorship. So just as after the demise of the Holy Prophet Muhammad, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, there was Khilafat, there was successorship, in exactly the same way after the demise of the promised Messiah, may peace be upon him, God Almighty once again gifted Islam with Khilafat, with successorship. The Ahmadiyya Khilafat was established after the demise of the promised Messiah and has been established for well over a hundred years. We are now in the era of the fifth Caliph, who is Hazrat Mirza Masroor Ahmad. The mission of the Ahmadiyya Khulafa, of the Ahmadiyya Caliphs, is to continue to preach and spread the truthful and peaceful teachings of Islam around the world. These are the five core beliefs of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. Welcome back to the breakfast show here on the Voice of Islam Radio. Um, in this part of the show, we are talking about uh, talking about our first segment, going through our first segment. Uh, which is uh, well, the gist of the story is that the the case of a metropolitan police officer who avoided um, who avoided dismissal despite facing eleven separate allegations of wrongdoing is just one of the findings highlighted in the report detailing serious mis- misconduct within the force as well. This is this is quite serious. And during the during the news when I was going uh, th- through the news. There was this uh, topic as well. There was this uh, this um, this article or this uh, report that there have been cases cases in the hundreds, not even in the hundreds, in the thousands actually, that there have been police officers who have misconduct, who have uh, had a history as well, but they have um, sort of you know they've passed the test and they they were allowed to become um, uh, uh, part of the police force now. This is how, I mean, this report shows how a police officer has faced several allegations regarding incidents like harassment, fraud, assault, um, and the list goes on as well. However, he continued to serve in the force, but was eventually arrested for a sexual offence as well. Based on data 
uh, collected by uh, Baroness Casey's team, officers from ethnic minority backgrounds were significantly more likely to have complaints against them uh, upheld than their white counterparts as well. But this doesn't mean that this is, uh, you know, this is always the case. Um, black police officers were 81% more likely. Asian officers were 55% uh, more likely. And uh, mixed race officers were 41% more likely uh, as well. This is what the report uh, suggested. Um, uh, uh, Baroness uh, Casey's team, this is what they reported. Another part of the study proved that sexual misconduct complaints in comparison to all other complaints were much less likely uh, to be to be upheld um, and also answered as well. Only around 29% of such cases were actually brought to the point where the officer in question would be required to answer to to court. Um, how, how does it... Uh, how does this happen then? Which cases are actually gone to, uh, you know, are actually presented into court? Which which cases are actually uh, gone into uh, or actually questioned? And then which ones are serious? Which ones are not serious? Aren't they all serious though? Um, due to this, such behaviour was uh, perceived to not breach professional relegations and standards. And a Anything goes culture has been instilled in some staff and general public too. I mean, uh, of course, of course that's what's going to happen. That's what's going to be one of the consequences. That's going to be one of the outcomes, actually. <laughs> anything goes. Anything goes. Anything can happen. Eh? I mean, it doesn't matter. Sometimes it's it's just about it's just about money. Sometimes it's just about oh, if you need to send the money in the right place, put it underneath the table or put it in someone's pocket and you're you're good to go. You're good to go. And that's something that we see in the developing countries. But maybe that's what we're seeing here in the developing developed countries as well. But it has come into the news right now. It has come into the it has come into the public uh public minds right now. The public can see this now because the reports have actually come in. Maybe this has been happening you know, since you know, from before as well. But we we're just seeing the reports coming out right now and that's why uh, we're talking about it. But reports have also uh, shown that investigations into such cases take extremely long, around a year, to be completed. Um, I'm not sure. I mean, I'm not a professional in this. I don't know what happens, how, you know, someone files a complaint and then uh, what the investigation, if there is an investigation or not, if it goes to court or not, because 29% of such cases uh, go to court anyway. Uh, only twenty nine percent, but so I don't. Maybe they could take up to, they could take up to a year, and also been observed that in some cases, some extreme cases, investigations can take up to four years. So somebody has been harassed. Somebody has been a victim of harassment from, from let's just say, from a from a police officer. That can that can take up to a year. That can that can take up to four years. Um. You know, for justice to be to be there, or may, may, not just justice. I'm talking about just so that it can be questioned, so that the the inquiry can happen, so the investigation can happen. Uh, in four years, what's what's you know? Sometimes people even forget what happened four years ago. Sometimes sometimes people even say, okay, you know, it happened so long ago, just forget about it. 
Now, of course, this, that's not that's not the case all the time. If it's something which is serious, um, if it's a proper harassment that's happened, if it's proper uh, victimization, if it's for if someone has been victimized, if someone has has uh, gone through some some bad time, they can get go through trauma. Four years is not. I mean, no one will forget it in four years or so. So that's just. I'm not saying. I'm not saying people will forget about something which happened four years ago, but there would be some cases which will be which will be quite severe, which will be quite extreme, and uh, which do need to be questioned. Now, complaints have, in these cases, uh, been deemed pointless, as really any cases get to the point where the offender is to answer. And this has not only instilled fear, but also a sense of helplessness in both colleagues and the wider public as well. In colleagues, because sometimes we see that female uh, female workers, female police officers, or female workers actually, uh, they, they, they've been uh, victimised as well. They have been uh, the, the target, the prime target for these, for these people as well. For the offenders, for the predators, for the people to actually commit offence, and uh, for the public as well, because we see this happening in the public. We see people, uh, we see police officers uh, misusing misusing their misusing their authority. We see police officers uh, doing this, uh, you know, strip searching for no apparent reason. We see them, um, you know, abusing their authority. We see them, you know, beating up someone just just because they can. We see the people arresting, uh, you know, just normal teenagers or kids, uh, young adults or other people as well, just because they thought they looked suspicious. I mean, we see this happening more in other countries, but we're seeing that here in the UK as well. Some some new reforms will be put in place as uh, as pledged by Sir Mark, saying that ensuring a new anti-corruption and Abuse command will be properly equipped and supported to tackle misconduct. Evaluate evaluating existing data to identify the root out, um, the root out, uh, you know, and root out officers who pose a risk. Setting out new standards of behaviour and outlining a a clear direction in declaration of standards. The Met Commissioner has also stated that the public has been let down by the Met and therefore these changes will have to take place in uh, you know in in order to create a better environment as well. So go through some statistics as well because they are, they're also quite interesting. Some 1809 officers or 20% of all those facing allegations had more than one complaint raised against them. So it's not just it's not just one person saying something. It's um it's it's more than one person. Uh it's, you know, it's more than one complaint that they have been received as well. I mean it can be one person, but it can be more than one complaint as well. More than five hundred officers and staff have faced between three to five different misconduct cases since two thousand and thirteen. Well Barona's cases Team said that less than one percent of those facing multiple allegations had mis- had been dismissed from the force. H- how is that then? Where's the justice then? You know, obviously people are going to be frustrated from this. Obviously people are going to be going, but going to fear the the police as well. If there's no justice in the police system, then obviously who is there to give the justice then? 
right? On average, the medicine investigations take far 400 days to conclude. That's over a year. That's a year, a year and a third nearly. Um, almost, almost, uh, just over a year. Almost 20% of cases take over two to th- two to uh, over two years to resolve. Sometimes it can even take up to four years. In some extreme cases, as I mentioned, around two percent of those reported inquiries can actually remain ongoing for more than four years. So, I mean, it can take as long as they they essentially want. Then, isn't it? Between fifty-five percent to sixty percent of complaints made by Met officers and staff against colleagues resulted in a no case, no answer decision. Well. Um, well above the national average of forty six percent. So, this is what the this is what it is. You know, this is what the statistics or what the data is actually showing. Now, the thing is, is that when we talk about Islam, first of all, a, a fundamental and basic teaching of Islam is that a true Muslim is someone from whose tongue and whose hand all other peaceful all other, all other people are actually are actually safe and this is the definition of a muslim given by the holy prophet of islam peace and blessings of allah be upon him after hearing this basic and and beautiful principle um you can you know can any allegation or complaint be leveled against islam of course not certainly not islam teaches that only those who use their tongues and hands to 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 spread injustice and hatred deserve to be, um, you know, they deserve to be they deserve to be punished. Um, those people, because from a local level to a global level, if all parties remain within the confines of this golden, golden principle, we would find that there would never be religious disorder, there would never be political strife. Uh, and nor would there be disorder based on greed and a desire to gain power. If these true Islamic principles are actually followed, then within countries, the, the, the members of the general public will safeguard each other's rights and feelings, and the government also would fulfill their roles to, to protect the citizens as well. At an international inter, international level, such Nations would uh, work together with a spirit of true sympathy and compassion towards one another as well. Another key principle uh, Islam teaches is that it, it, in an effort to develop peace, it is necessary for all parties to never display any form of pride or arrogance. And, you know, if we're talking about the police, sometimes they can become arrogant Sometimes they can have this pride. Sometimes they wear the badge and then they become, they think that they can do anything. They think they can walk all over the law. They think that they are the law. They think that whatever they say, that happens. And this was perfectly illustrated, you know, talking about, talking about plea, talking about peace, talking about justice and all of these things. This was actually illustrated by the Holy Prophet of Islam, Muhammad, uh, the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. When he famously said a black person is not superior to a white person, and nor is a white person superior to a black person, and so you know when we talk about this, a neither a European is greater or superior to any other nation, nor are Africans, Asians, or other people of any other part of the world, you know, greater than any other people as well. Differences of nationality, color, or ethnicity act merely as a form of identity and recognition as well. 
you know, Allah the Almighty talks says in the Holy Quran that your your blood and your uh, you're talking about your sacrifices, they don't actually reach God. What reaches God is your taqwa, is your righteousness. So those people who are righteous, those people who follow uh, righteousness, and righteousness is something that actually gives us this ability to to reform ourselves and to fulfill the you know to fulfill the rights of God, which is to listen to Him, to obey Him, to listen to His commandments, to obey His commandments, to worship Him, and on the other hand, is to fulfill the rights of mankind. And fulfilling the rights of mankind is sometimes harder than fulfilling the rights of God. You know, when we talk about prayer, when we talk about fulfilling the rights of God, we, we talk about prayer, we talk about, you know, various other things which He's told us to do, uh, you know, fasting, giving, uh, you know, becoming, you know, becoming a good, loyal person. But fulfilling the rights of mankind is sometimes more difficult because there will be people who are against you. There will be people who are doing injustices against you. There will be people who will try to victimize you. There will be people in authority who will try to lay you down, put you down. Um, you know, so at that time, displaying justice is actually a very, very good thing as well. It's difficult to, if you have authority, and uh, to suppress your anger and not actually putting your, you know, putting your differences aside. Becoming, having an authority is a responsibility, as I mentioned before as well, it's a responsibility that we need to fulfill, that anyone who has authority needs to fulfill. And not letting personal grudges get the better of themselves as well. Not, you know, personal gain is also one of these things. Pride, prejudice is also one of these things. Sometimes being racist is also the reason, or even sexist is also one of the reasons why people... Uh, misuse their power, misuse their authority as well. With regards to Muslims participating in politics, His Holiness, Hazrat Mirza Masrur Ahmad, may Allah be his helper, he is the fifth caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, the fifth caliph of the Prophet Messiah, upon whom be peace as well. He said that Islam emphasizes that there should be democratic freedom and teaches that when appointing leaders, those people should be chosen who will fulfill their responsibilities and trust with integrity. This is very, very important. Whenever we choose any government, whenever we choose any authority, whenever, because we are living in a democracy, whenever we choose those people who will essentially govern us, who will make the policies and all of these things, we must think that are these people actually going to fulfill their responsibilities with trust and with integrity? His Holiness then said that this requires them to work for the betterment of the people and the country and to discard personal interests for the sake of the greater good. That's what's important. That is the key principle. Taking our personal interests aside, putting these things aside for the greater good, for the betterment of the whole society, of the whole country. Islam teaches that one's uh, affiliation to any party should not be the deciding factor in appointing a leader. Rather, the, those people should be elected who help the people and the country to progress further. So it doesn't matter if, the, if someone is from your party or not. If you think that someone else from a different party is actually going to fulfill the rights better than someone from your own party, then that person should be elected. That person should be chosen. That person should be voted for as well. Because in the end, 
if they are fulfilling the rights of mankind properly, if they are fulfilling the rights of their citizens, of the people, and of course the country, they're helping the country do progress further, then those things should be implemented, those people should be chosen as well. And this goes uh, across, the, uh, across, the, across the table as well. Not just talking about the, you know, the prime minister, or if there's a general election, of, or if we're choosing our local MP or the mayor, or, or whoever we're, we're choosing in authority, it could be, it could be, uh, uh, you know, it could be talking about whoever your 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 new boss is. Maybe you, you can you, you have a, maybe you can vote for that as well. But I'm talking about across the across the uh, uh, scope. I'm talking about across the table. Talking about policy makers. Talking about police officers as well. When they are chosen, they need to know that this is a responsibility that they need to that they need to uh, fulfill as well. So these things are these things are very very much important that we that we you know that we go through these things as well. Now justice is uh, you know is, is justice is very important. Justice is something that will lead. Uh, nation into into prosperity uh, as well. So this is uh, this is something that should not be taken lightly. In fact, this is something that, on the the lower scale, all the way up to the higher scale. Because if there's justice in a particular country, if there's if there's justice in 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 a government in a, in a body which governs a country, if there's justice in uh, in all of these things, then we can actually progress. Uh, as well, and then we can have in uh, international peace as well. So uh, hopefully, you know that uh, happens. Let's listen to a brief audio clip, which will uh, you know which will tell us a little bit more about establishing world peace. In essence, you can say that uh, great stress is laid upon justice and the execution of justice, and the concept of justice is absolute in Islam. So unless absolute justice is exercised and exercised and is established regardless of uh, the relationship between you and the one on whom you are passing judgment. This is the fundamental for establishing peace. Secondly, the fundamental for establishing world peace is mentioned in the very name of Islam. Islam means not only peace, but a message or a behavior of peace, conduct of peace towards others. This is why Islam is best explained in the last sermon of Wasallam during Hajjul Vizaj. In that sermon he explained Islam completely. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullah. Peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. So that was the 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 uh, welcome back to the breakfast show. That was a quick roundup of the uh, of, of of the first segment, and swiftly moving on to the second segment as well because uh, that's also quite linked to the first segment, and that is how uh, sexual abuse, child sexual abuse, or failing to report that. Um, should be made illegal is one major inquiry also just to the story is that anyone who works with children and does not report sexual abuse or child sexual abuse should be prosecuted the final report of a huge seven year inquiry has actually recommended uh, this uh, this as well um, 
it called the it called the the nature uh, and scale of abuse in England and Wales horrific and deeply disturbing, with children threatened, threatened, beaten, uh, beaten and humiliated. The inquiry began in 2015, and has cost 186 million pounds, with evidence from 7,000 victims. Now, just to summarize. Um, the article which was actually which was used um uh, f- f- you know for this as well uh former prime minister um even before boris johnson even before uh liz trust Theresa may uh told uh, told bbc news she had no idea of the scale of child abuse when she set up an inquiry as home secretary and was absolutely horrified when it became increasingly clear. The report suggests that the institutions too often prioritised their personal and institutional reputations above, above the welfare of those who were duty-bound to, uh, to protect. And some institutions did not even respond to all the inquiries and investigations, while others merely offended sincere apologies and adequate provision of, uh, of support and counselling. That's what, you know, quote-unquote, that's what they that's what they that's what they offered that's the only thing that they had to offer was sincere policies and inadequate provision of support and counseling <laughs> sometimes uh, you see you wonder sometimes you wonder if you know if that's even if that's even possible can they can they just say that if there's a proper investigation that should be take that should take place but it doesn't take place it just gets uh, it just gets dismissed and then uh, you know, a, 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 the only thing which is offered to them is a, is sincere apologies. Um, let's get uh, let's get our guest who's on the line with us, uh, Sabah Kaiser, who is uh, an ethnic minority ambassador for uh, Independent Inquiry Child Sexual Abuse. Peace be upon you. Good morning. Uh, welcome to the show, Sabah. Good morning. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Um, can you give us uh, a little a little background information on the work of the inquiry and how you sort of came to be involved in this? Uh, yes, of course. Uh, so as the ethnic minority ambassador, I became involved uh, in February 2019. The inquiry itself was set up back in 2015 hmm. uh, after the wake of some very serious uh, incidents of rape uh, and abuse of children that was constantly being reported in the news and the media, um, namely, you know, Jimmy Savile and of the like. Mm. The then Home Secretary, Theresa May, commissioned uh, an inquiry uh, into understanding the failures of institutions. Uh, and so, yes, so, so from that, this inquiry was born. It's a independent inquiry. So although it's commissioned by uh, government, it stands independent to government, which allows the inquiry to investigate where it feels it needs to in order to fulfill its terms of reference. Uh, I was a participant of Truth, uh, the Inquiry's Truth Project, which I can speak about in a moment. Um, I gave my account to the to the Truth Project. I believe it was back in 2017, late 2017 or early 2018. And then it was after that that I approached the Inquiry. Um, I felt quite strongly that this Inquiry uh, needed <laughs> probably rather 
arrogantly uh, someone like myself mm. to uh, help the inquiry uh, ensure that the inquiry uh, was representative uh, of victims and survivors from ethnic minority communities. I felt that I had quite a lot of experience, knowledge that would help this inquiry uh, reach those communities that often can be silenced when talking about child sexual abuse. Yeah, yeah. Um, could you, or would you be able to tell us a little bit about uh, about your own about your own experience? Yes, of course. Mm. Um, uh, apologies for anybody listening right now. If mm. I may say something triggering uh, or upsetting, um, but I suppose in order to answer your question, it's important that I uh, be open. Uh, I uh, was born into a Muslim Punjabi. Uh, Pakistani household uh, from the age of seven to the age of approximately 13 years old four members of my family uh, sexually abused me it started when I was seven and grew into rape uh, when I was nine years old uh, by two of those members that rape uh, was repeated it it was systemic um, on, on a daily basis until I was approximately 13 years old Mm. Um, when I was 13, uh, I had a, um, a a lesson at school. Um, it was just half a day, and it uh, was sex education. Mm. And that was the first time that I actually realized what was happening to me all those years. Mm. All those years as a child uh, and growing up in an Islamic household, I didn't have the education or language around what those men were doing to me. What I thought was that they were hitting me, that I was a naughty child and this is the way that they hit. Um, Mm. So I was doing everything that I could in my childlike way to to please them, to make them like me so that they wouldn't keep hitting me. But it it, it didn't, you know, I I wasn't successful. As I say, Mm. those, uh, the abuse grew into rape. At the age of 14, um, I, I'm in care now. Uh, social services had instructed a teacher at my school, a PE teacher, to act as a counsellor uh, for me. Mm. Um, and then he went on to abuse me from the age of 14 till I was uh, 17, approximately. Wow. I mean, I mean, I'm sorry to sort of you know bring that up uh, as well, um, but you know I can tell that you know it must have been a difficult. Um, sort of uh, period for for you as well. Um, can you can, can you tell us about any any barriers that that you faced in coming forward as well when you when you realised that this was happening? Um, was there anything that was a hindrance or any barriers? Yes. So as I explained, um, being a uh, a Muslim uh, Southeast Asian uh, girl, um, and and those points are quite important. So my religion, Hmm. my culture, and my gender um, actually presented me with quite a lot of barriers in, uh, first of all, understanding, knowing what this was that was being done to me. I was seven years old, um, and then when I did realize, when I eventually understood, I still didn't really have the language. I um, wasn't able to identify what this was so it, it, it was only when I realized what it was that then I started to experience shame 
The barriers, I would say, um, were barriers such as language, understanding. I had no knowledge. Uh, the barrier of shame and dishonor came later. Um, I felt that, uh, and, and I, in, in fact, I knew uh, growing up in my house, the responsibility and the onus that was placed on me because I was a girl. Hmm. And therefore, the uh, respect that my family and indeed my community held was uh, was very much on my shoulders. And that if I were to disrespect or dishonor my family, um, they would lose their standing or their respect in the community. Hmm. Um, those are just a, a, a few for me to, to, to mention. But uh, then later... Um, when uh, trying to explain, I, re I recall at the age of 13, when in my childlike way, tried to explain to a teacher at school what was happening. Um, quite rightly, the teacher called the police, called social services. Um, two police officers attended the school to speak with me about uh, about this and um, after a few questions one of the officers asked me did he have intercourse with you mm. I didn't know what that word meant let alone I wasn't able to even say the word repeat the word I asked what the word meant and upon that question upon asking what it meant um, the officer stood up and uh, and the other followed and they said uh, or she said if you don't know what that word means, then it can't have happened to you. Mm. So there, there's mm. a lack of cultural competency and, and knowledge by those officers that here in front of you is a Muslim Asian girl. Uh, she will have had a different upbringing to perhaps her peers. Um, and, and so that pushed me back into my uh, story. Uh, and, and rather than bringing me out of it, it very much pushed me back. Uh, when I was confronted with social services, I was let down on multiple, multiple areas, in multiple areas. Um, I eventually did, was taken into care, but the uh, the reason local authority gave for taking me into care was that I was beyond parental control. They didn't believe that I was being abused. Uh, uh, they uh, they actually, I, I did request my files from freedom from local authority using the Freedom of Information Act, um, and in there, uh, the social worker at the time states, she's rebelling against her culture. She doesn't want to wash the dishes. Literally, it says that. Mm. So there was a lot of stereotyping there that in itself acts as a as a barrier for me to report or indeed disclose my experiences of abuse. The inquiry has done a lot of work in understanding those barriers. Having me, first of all, in the instance as an ethnic minority ambassador, but we also, back in um, 2018, uh, undertook a comprehensive study in understanding the barriers that ethnic minority communities faced when disclosing uh, or, or indeed reporting their experiences of child sexual abuse. Within that study, uh, which took approximately 18 months, we travelled uh, across England and Wales. So this inquiry is, is covers England and Wales. Scotland have their own inquiry. Mm. Uh, we went to seven cities, four, four rural areas. We engaged with over 15 different 
ethnic minority communities. You know, that's quite an important point because by virtue of being an ethnic minority, uh, sometimes authorities can homogenize groups, but we have very beautiful individual traditions, cultures and religions, which must be recognized, but within those exist separate intersection, in, intersectional barriers. So 15 different ethnic minority community groups we engaged with um, and we then published our report, the engagement report, uh, April last year, I believe it was April 2021, which identified six specific barriers that we were told about mm -hmm. uh, that can, can, can act as, uh, can, can be uh, problematic hurdles. Um, uh, can stop a, a, a victim and survivor from ethnic minority communities to come forward. Shame and honour was something that was spoken about quite a lot and I'm sure your listeners here today will know a lot about that particular barrier can be quite dangerous um, and that was a barrier for me in my teens and was quite seriously serious and quite dangerous for me. Yeah, yeah. Um Talking about uh, talking about the 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 report, C can you share your reflections uh, on that as well? Yes, absolutely. Uh, I think it's quite important to say uh, that this inquiry, which, as I explained, uh, was commissioned back in 2015, uh, its its life was approximately eight years. So, although on the 20th of October our final report was published. Uh, which outlined the final 20 recommendations. This inquiry, in fact, uh, over its journey, over its lifetime, has made 107 recommendations in total. Um, it's important to say that this inquiry is not just about its final report, but it's about the breadth of all the work throughout the inquiry uh, that has been done. Um, so. To, to give you uh, an example of that, um, there are several there, there are several facets of this inquiry: mm. its truth project, uh, its research team, the engagement team, and then the investigations uh, that that were done by this inquiry. <coughs> so <coughs> let me. Uh, so we did in, in total. This inquiry has completed nineteen uh, investigations, and those reports have been published. Uh, throughout this inquiry's lifetime, it actually published um, it, it 87, it gave 87 recommendations of which 80% already uh, uh, have been put in place, which is very comforting for, uh, for, for myself, especially as a victim and, and survivor uh, of child sexual abuse. The Truth Project, which I spoke about earlier, mm. that's a... That's a, a um, Something that I would say that was very close to my heart, um, the Truth Project itself is a, um, is a system which allows, within the inquiry, which allowed victim and survivors to come and give their account of their experiences of, of child sexual abuse, to share their, their account to the inquiry, which directly fed into the various work streams of the inquiry. So in total, uh, over 6,300, I think the exact figure uh, was 6,339 individual people came and shared their accounts of their experiences of child sexual abuse. Um, over 6,200 victims and survivors uh, uh, shared their experiences with the Truth 
project. Uh, over 5,800 victims and survivors who shared their experience with the Truth Project also consented to being part of the research program. And of the 6,339 accounts, 10% of those victims and survivors were from an ethnic minority background. 45% uh, told us that they had an illness or condition uh, that affected their everyday lives. And 13% of victims and survivors identified uh, their sexual orientation as gay or, or, or bisexual. Um, we also have, uh, as I explained, the research team, yeah. which in itself um, conducted uh, uh, research and those research reports are published. So there's a whole body of information out there uh, which this inquiry has conducted uh, 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 and published, something that I have to say I'm extremely proud of. That work is out there now in the public domain. So whilst the final report is extremely important, the recommendations listed in that, also this inquiry's investigations, uh, the Truth Project, its research work, and of course, within the engagement team, um, we, we have, I believe, in total four reports that have been published. Uh, one of those is the contemporary views of young people, um, which I think is, an, is, is well, I believe is an excellent read, and, and your listeners, if interested, should look that up. Yeah. Uh, yeah, definitely. Absolutely. Oh, and let me just add, sorry, just yes. to, to, I just wanted to add this inquiry also uh, had uh, a victim and has a victim and survivors panel, which further enhanced the inquiry's understanding of the issues experienced by all survivors uh, and, and also a forum, a victim and survivors forum, which a membership uh, was over 1500 people. So, you know, if you put all of that to all of that, uh, together, you can see that this inquiry uh, went to great lengths to ensure that victims and survivors were at the heart of everything that they did. It informed their recommendations and ensured that all 107 recommendations were designed to ensure that uh, uh, institutions, statutory bodies, public and private, were there to ensure the safety of all children and in, in England as well. Sorry, I'll stop speaking. I mm. tend to go on a bit, don't I? Well, no, it's good to you know get a detailed uh, sort of uh, analysis on that as well. Um, talking about talking about a turning point, maybe as well. Do you think that this report will be sort of uh, a, a turning point in society? Yes, I, I actually uh, I actually do believe it, it will be a turning point. Mm. You know, I used the word earlier, uh, comforting. I have to say, uh, you know, taking my hat off as a professional, mm -hmm. the ethnic minority ambassador, I work as a consultant in safeguarding uh, women and children from any kind of violence. I've been working in that field for over 14 years. Um, I speak eight languages. I, I've worked uh, and I still work as an interpreter. Mm -hmm. um, I uh, work as a consultant to the CSA Centre uh, uh, within Bernardo's. Um, and, uh, you know, my, my CV is quite extensive. Mm. Taking that hat off for a moment and just speaking to you as Saba, um, mm. as, as a survivor of child sexual abuse, this inquiry um, has been very comforting for me. I do feel very strongly that in implementing the recommendations that Chair and Panel uh, have made, um, will, um, if government uh, does in fact uh, implement these uh, policies, changes in policies and legislation will indeed um, make a better and safer 
um, uh, uh, system for our children. Mandatory reporting, uh, I think, is extremely important. Um, uh, setting up a, a child protection authority. Compensation and accountability is, is also extremely vital, just to mention uh, three recommendations there. But as I said, there's, there's in total 107. In implementing these recommendations, uh, government can ensure that uh, our children in England and Wales and Scotland will be doing their own uh, are protected in future from child sexual abuse. It's, 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 uh, th- these recommendations are clear. Uh, they weren't wrapped in any hierarchy. Um, I do feel quite strongly that they have not unfairly or disproportionately singled out any specific group or section of our society. But by doing that and by design has ensured that the narrative around child sexual abuse is a singular and empowering voice right, for all of us. England and Wales make up a, a beautiful multi multi-diverse uh, society. So it's, in, it's, it's important that, uh, uh, that we have a singular voice, right? We all stand together and we say enough. Our chair spoke and she spoke about a national epidemic. Uh, CSA is a child sexual abuse is an ever-increasing problem in our society. This inquiry, its recommendations ensure that this subject matter, this topic, this issue is no longer hidden. Uh, and and it's brought out into the open um, and you know it makes it very clear within all the work that it has done that all children can be victims of child sexual uh, abuse and therefore it is a moral ethical and social responsibility for all of us including organizations and governments to act now absolutely absolutely um, and hopefully you know like you said that it, it will be a turning point and it will be quite promising as well um, why do you think the public awareness uh, around this subject is important? It's really important for, well, <laughs> just to mention the, w- when you first asked me about my own story and you said, uh, Saba, what were the barriers that you experienced? Hmm. Um, now, just think about those barriers for a moment. Uh, let me start with shame and honour. So shame and honour within our community, within, you know, certainly my community, uh, and, and your listeners will be aware, right. we tend to place the shame and dishonor at the victim's feet, yeah. right? Yeah. We do not place it with the perpetrator. We tend to uh, excuse away the perpetrator's behavior, the abuser's behavior, and the shame is usually uh, experienced by the victim. Mm. That is something that we need education on. That is something that we need to shift the narrative, our language needs to ch- change. If you think about our language, right, mm. uh, that in itself was a barrier for me. As a child, I did not have the words to explain to my mother, to the school, to the police, to social services, what was happening to me. Think about all those missed opportunities as a child that I had. When it first happened to me at seven years old, it didn't need to continue until I was 13. Mm. And then it didn't need to happen again when I was 14. And it didn't need to continue from 14 until I was 17. Because of the experiences that I had as a child, it had affected my, my adult life and my relationships. That didn't need to happen. The cost to society is, is exponential. We cannot put a figure on it. 
So uh, it's really important that awareness, I mean, that's just, you know, we don't have a lot of time and this is just me giving you just a few points. But there are so many reasons why awareness around this subject matter um, really must be raised and it must be raised now. You know, if somebody uh, experiences they're a victim of a burglary, Think about that crime and think about the way in which the police will speak to the victim. Mm. They won't ask them, well, what were you wearing? Was it your fault? Did you ask for it? They wouldn't be asking any such questions. Well, did you leave the door open? Did you invite them in? Mm. No, they wouldn't be asking you those questions. And the, the people in the family or your community, they would, they would be sympathetic towards uh, that, that victim of a burglary, wouldn't they? Yeah. Oh, I'm really sorry this happened to you. Is there anything that we can do? Can we help you make things safer for you? You know, the, the, the crime is dealt with, spoken about, the narrative is completely different when the crime involves sex. Yeah. And this is something, as a community... Not just our own communities, not just ethnic minority communities, but the community of England and Wales. It needs to change our language, our narrative, the way we think about sex and the, what we know uh, about child sexual abuse. Children are left silenced within their story of abuse because of the barriers that society have given them. Do you not think it's time that we break down those barriers and put a protective arm around our children? You know, as a child, I used to think that my uh, my abusers had this magic cloak, that they were given this magic cloak, but they it wasn't given to me. And I used to think as a child, you know, I want that magic cloak. I want to be protected by it. Why is it that I'm not protected? I was abandoned uh, by my family when I uh, eventually was able to tell my truth. They turned their back on me, uh, and 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 that was debilitating for me as a person. And many children speak about that. They speak about being abandoned, ostracized, shunned by the community and their family mm. because they spoke out about their experience. That's a lifelong sentence. Yeah. Yeah. Awareness, awareness is vital. It is very, very important. Uh, very uh, well said there as well. And I'm sure you know it took uh, quite courage to actually come out on air, and uh, you know share your experiences and uh, you know your 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 thoughts as well. Thank you. Can, can I just yeah. say, uh, sorry, just one more thing. I just wanted to say about the awareness. Sorry to yes. in- interrupt you there, but uh, as a Muslim, when I was a child, I was taught about this word ilm. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and I believe uh, in, in, in uh, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, what I understood by that word ilm um, means that it's, it's an Islamic, Islamic, Islam teaches uh, Islamic people that it's a responsibility for them to gain education, exactly. to have the knowledge. It, it, it's, it's a sin to not have ilm. So knowledge is vital, it is important, and Islam teaches us that. Absolutely. Sorry, that was just the one thing I wanted to say. That's uh, that's quite right. That's quite right, uh, and that is uh, that is true as well. That we should uh, we should uh, it's incumbent upon every every man and woman to actually gain gain knowledge and uh, you know g- you know g- reach our standards higher in ilm yes. as well, being knowledge. 
But uh, Sabah, I was just going to thank you for you know for for joining us uh, uh, this morning on our show today and raising awareness as well. Because just like you said, it is it is very very much important as well. And thank you for being so so courageous and brave, and uh, you know you know sharing your experience with us as well. And I'm sure that it must have been quite difficult, but uh, may God bless you and help you as well. Um, you know in your future life as well. And thank you so much for for joining thank us once you. again. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank and you. thank you for looking. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Assalamu alaikum. Bye. So that was uh, Sabah Kaiser, uh and uh, she's an ethnic minority ambassador, ambassador for independent inquiry, child sex, uh, sexual abuse. And uh, just listening to her story, just listening to the incidents and, you know, the trauma that she had to go through as well. You know, it, it, it is quite saddening as well to, to, to actually hear that. Um, to hear that, to to actually you know hear what she actually went through, for her family to actually um, abandon her as well, and this this shame. I don't know why. I don't know why this happens, and it's and it's quite right what she mentioned as well that it happens in the it happens in the uh, the ethnic minority groups as well that the victim gets the blame. What? Why? Why does the victim get the blame? When the victim didn't even do anything, and well, she said as well that if there was a burglary, if there was a victim of, of a burglary or theft, then people would sympathise with that with that person with the victim. But when it comes to sexual abuse, it's quite opposite. I don't know why it it, it, it beats me, and this is why, you know, r- awareness needs to be raised to at the highest level, and it's, it's it's something that it's something that more people need to be need to know about this. More people need to be aware about this, and and the more people know about these things, and you know, people, even children, they need to know what the red flags are. They need to be educated as well what the red flags are, and if they if they are coming out and telling someone, if they're telling their parents, if they're telling their teachers, if they're telling the authority, if they're telling their care worker or whoever that this is happening. That this, you know, they, they they think that they are being abused, or they they think that they might get abused, or they think that something may be happening. Then the authorities, or those people who are listening on the other on the receiving side, um, they need to be more welcoming as well, instead of just shunning it, instead of blaming them, instead of you know pointing fingers at them. But why are they in the wrong when they're when they're the victims? How is the victim in the wrong? Um, so these things are very very much important. May God. You know, protect uh, all of us as well, and uh, you know this doesn't happen. I mean, hopefully, people you know raise awareness, and those perpetrators get actually uh, questioned and um, uh, at the highest level as well. But this is our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, peace be upon you. Assalamualaikum warahmatullah.